Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 4, The Fur Empire. If you've been listening to the podcast since it began, you might notice the logo change. My Uncle Mario reached out to me and said he thought that my logo could use an update. I said I had been thinking that ever since I created it. I'm not much for graphic design, as some of you may have noticed, and I had planned on getting a new logo eventually. Thanks to my uncle, I have a fantastic logo that I am pretty excited about. So, thanks again, Uncle Mario. Now, on with the podcast. Today, we will be looking at another one of our major North American players who held a tremendous financial stake in the Pacific Northwest. That is the Hudson's Bay Company, located in modern-day Canada. The Hudson's Bay Company was a massive fur trade empire. At its peak, it operated in about 3 million square miles of territory, trading in valuable North American beaver fur. The company minted its own currency, had a standing army, navy, and awarded medals to the people who served it. They traded guns, brandy, tools such as knives and axes, and many other things for furs. These furs would be sent all over the world to be auctioned off for a considerable profit. The North American beaver's fur was particularly valuable for the felt that could be made from it. Most felts at the time required the use of dangerous chemicals such as mercury. Beaver fur did not, though. Beaver felt was naturally water-resistant and highly durable. Beaver was the height of fashion in London and a sign of wealth. The beaver felt was even used for the hats worn by officers in the British military. Beaver felt always came with a lifetime guarantee. The Hudson's Bay Company rival, the Northwest Company, established a network of traders and trappers who sought to harness all the beaver pelts they could across the Canadian frontier. The Northwest Company would rush to establish a presence west of the Rockies in the early 1800s, hoping to incorporate the Pacific Northwest into England's domain. The British were not ready to quit the North American continent, despite 13 of their colonies rebelling in 1776. Before we get into that, let's go back to when England first established a presence in the bay. In 1576, a man by the name of Sir Martin Frobisher received financial backing to search for the Northwest Passage. Frobisher said that finding the Northwest Passage was, quote, the only thing in the world which was left undone, unquote. In a world that was feeling smaller and smaller all the time, that must have felt true. Frobisher would be unsuccessful in finding anything during his voyage along the Atlantic coast of modern-day Canada. He found some fool's gold, but no Northwest Passage. Frobisher would serve under our old friend Francis Drake the following year. While Drake was harassing Spanish ships, Henry Hudson was born. Surprisingly little is known about the early life of Henry Hudson. He was born sometime between 1560 and 1570, and his father may have been a city council leader. The first known trace of Henry Hudson in the historical record comes up in 1607, when he was already an experienced sailor and began to explore. Hudson searched for navigable waterways in the world. He explored the Hudson River, which is named after him, in New York, on behalf of the Dutch East India Company. This allowed the Dutch to colonize that particular region. Today we are most concerned with Hudson's final voyage of exploration, which took place from 1610 to 1611. Hudson was tasked with finding a Northwest Passage through modern-day Canada. Again, it found the Northwest Passage would not only provide a direct route to Asia and the Pacific coast, but anyone who discovered it could claim a monopoly on its use. 
Henry Hudson set out on his ship, Discovery. Let's pause here for a moment before I go further on Henry Hudson's voyage. I'd like to take some time to give you an idea of what it was like on a ship during these times, as voyages and sailing will be coming up quite a bit. As I had said on a previous episode, sailing was a tough job, and a life at sea was not an easy one. Depending on the size of a ship, a crew could range from 50 men to perhaps 150 to even 200. Every ship would have a captain who was in charge of everything on that particular vessel. The captain's word was law when on the ocean. If the captain said jump, you were not supposed to ask how high, you were just supposed to jump. Captains would have several officers and specialized personnel depending on need. Often there would be a chief pilot in charge of steering the ship and keeping a safe course. There would be a second in command in case the captain was indisposed or died during the voyage. Each ship had a physician who was also a dentist and a barber, a quartermaster who oversaw provisions and supplies, and a navigator to read the maps and charts and figure out exactly where they were. The bulk of a crew would consist of apprentices and sailors. Apprentices were young men, usually aging anywhere from 16 to their early 20s. Apprentices did the most difficult and dangerous tasks on a ship. They would climb high on the ropes, hoisting the sails, and doing other backbreaking work. Apprentices would hope to eventually become full-fledged sailors. Sailors were men experienced on the seas, aged anywhere from late 20s to about 40. Most men didn't sail past 40, as it was a difficult life and often caught up with them by that age. Sailors wouldn't climb high on the ropes or be required to do the most dangerous of tasks. They were too valuable to be risked. Most captains would rather have an inexperienced apprentice get hurt or killed than one of their veteran sailors. Harsh, I know, but that's how it was. These voyages were dangerous and difficult, and captains needed their best men ready, healthy, and alive. Okay, back to Henry Hudson. There are mixed reports on Hudson's demeanor and attitude towards his crew, but a lot of what we know about this voyage is questionable to say the least. We will deal with that pretty soon. Hudson was reportedly a melancholy man who struggled to make decisions. The crew he was assigned was a rough sort. From reports of the voyage, the men under Hudson were not exactly the cream of the crop. They were undisciplined and at times insubordinate. Hudson liked to attempt to settle issues on his ship democratically, which was uncommon for the time. Now, voting in democracy is excellent, but on a voyage of discovery, you typically do not want to put decisions up to a vote. Voting creates losers, and losers typically get upset. When a captain makes a decision, it's easier to follow if you didn't feel like you might have had a choice. After avoiding an iceberg that would have crippled their vessel, the Discovery sailed into a waterway that would later be named Hudson Strait after the captain of the expedition. Hudson Strait led them into the massive Hudson Bay. Hudson had hoped the bay was a part of the Northwest Passage he had been seeking. After entering the bay, winter was almost upon the crew. Hudson decided to explore the shoreline south and head for what he hoped were warmer waters. Hudson Strait was not far from the Arctic Circle. The crew ventured as far south as possible into Rupert Bay, an inlet of the Hudson Bay. The weather here fared no better. Soon, ice made navigation impossible. The crew was not prepared for a severe winter. They did not have the clothes or food stores necessary. Frostbite became a common affliction as well as scurvy. Scurvy was a particularly nasty ailment that often plagued those on long sea voyages. Scurvy is a disease that occurs when the body is lacking vitamin C, 
which comes from eating fresh fruits and vegetables. Voyagers could not store perishable goods and usually favored cured meats and long-lasting preserved food. Those foods do not contain vitamin C. Scurvy causes a breakdown in the connective tissues in the body. Common symptoms are aching joints, trouble moving, bone pain, as well as swollen gums. Scurvy at its worst would render someone unable to move due to incredible pain, and at that point, teeth would even fall out. If left untreated, scurvy is deadly. Two months at sea with no vitamin C could result in large portions of the crew dying or on the verge of death. It doesn't take a lot of vitamin C to stave off scurvy, so don't worry if you're not good at eating your fruits and vegetables. You are probably going to be fine. After the long winter, Captain Hudson was not in a good position. The crew was upset that Hudson was not headed for home after the brutal winter, as he wanted to continue exploring. There were also rumors among the crew that their captain had been hoarding food for himself. In response to these murmurings, Hudson fired his second-in-command, Robert Jewett, and confiscated all the navigation equipment so that only he knew where they were going. Hudson also never alleviated any of the rumors surrounding his food stores. Hudson's paranoid response only further alienated him, and six days after the discovery set sail, the crew mutinied. The mutineers put Hudson, his teenage son John, and seven others loyal to their captain on a small lifeboat and cut them loose. The lifeboat rowed as fast as they could and kept pace with the mutineers for a time, but his former crew unfurled their full sails and soon sped away from their pursuers. Henry Hudson was never seen or heard from again. It is possible that the survivors on the lifeboat may have temporarily stayed with the Inuit people, but this narrative has Henry Hudson dying shortly after his crew abandoned him. The mutineers made it for home. They returned to England starving, afflicted with scurvy, and eating candles made of beeswax for want of proper food. The mutineers were put on trial for their crimes, but acquitted. No doubt they possessed important knowledge of the bay they discovered. As I said, tales of Hudson's voyage are a little suspect. Our sources come directly from the mutineers. It is possible that they embellished or fabricated information to paint Henry Hudson as a paranoid incompetent. We can't know for certain, unfortunately, but it should be said that what we know about the voyage should be taken with a grain of salt. Despite its less than profitable nature, 10 voyages would follow Hudson's to more closely explore the bay he had discovered. There's that word again, discovered. The voyage of Thomas James and Luke Fox would finally end any hope of a northwest passage through Hudson Strait, but they found something as precious as gold along those waters. Thomas James recalled the beavers he saw as, quote, the choicest fur-bearing animals in the world, end quote. England would establish a colony in the area surrounding Hudson Bay under the administration of Prince Rupert of the Rhine, Duke of Cumberland. The enterprise would be referred to as the Hudson's Bay Company. The company established a post known as York Factory along the southwest shoreline of Hudson Bay. York Factory imported trade goods to be exchanged with Native American trappers. Native Americans had been trapping beavers for a long time. Aside from meat, furs were important for surviving the harsh Canadian winters. Workers at York Factory often wore up to seven layers of clothing during winter. That was when they were indoors. Winter was frigid, and during summers they would be onset by mosquitoes. They just couldn't win. 
Fur trading ventures in the Bay were largely mutually beneficial for the Europeans and Native Americans alike. There are apocryphal stories of traders at York Factory saying if a Native American wanted a rifle, they would need enough beaver pelts to stack up to the length of the rifle they wanted. They would even make the barrels and stocks longer in order to exploit a few more pelts. This is not true, though. Native American fur trappers had a product that Europeans wanted, and they recognized the value of what they possessed. They were intelligent enough to get a fair deal. The fur trade changed the Native American way of life. They gained access to tools and equipment that made their lives significantly easier. Iron tools and hunting rifles were especially valuable to them as they did not possess the means to make those. However, there was a downside. As time went on, Native Americans came to depend heavily on the Hudson's Bay Company to maintain their new way of life, not to mention the introduction of brandy. Native Americans had very little experience with alcohol prior to European contact. The only way to obtain more alcohol was to trade for it, as Native Americans did not possess the knowledge or means to make more. French traders were also making moves to get in on the lucrative fur trading business. The French established forts of their own along Hudson Bay, and engaged in trade with Native Americans as well as employing trappers of their own. French and British competition in North America would culminate in the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War as it is known to many Americans. I will be solely referring to it as the Seven Years' War, though. The war was fought from 1756 to 1763 between the French and the British over colonial claims in North America. The British would ultimately win the war, and France would be forced to surrender any claims to the North American mainland. At that point, the British were riding high, looking as if they would be the dominant power in North America. Thirteen of their pesky colonies would eventually dash that dream, though. The Seven Years' War was good for the Hudson's Bay Company, as it meant they no longer had to focus their time and energy on the protection or recapturing of forts. Forts regularly changed hands during the war as one side would capture a fort or trading post only for it to be recaptured by their enemies. Not long after the Seven Years' War, though, the Hudson's Bay Company had a rival company to face. This was the Northwest Company. The Northwest Company also dealt in furs, but they had a different approach. The Hudson's Bay Company had stayed content sitting tight and waiting for Native American trappers to bring them furs at York Factory. The Northwest Company had more of a pioneering approach. They relied on a large network of trappers out in the field working to bring in more furs. It wasn't until 1774 that the Hudson's Bay Company began building more inland trading posts to compete. Eventually, the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company would merge under the name Hudson's Bay Company. These fur trading companies set trappers and explorers in all directions to attempt to grow and map their vast territorial holdings. In future episodes, we will cover some of these expeditions in greater detail. England was hoping the Hudson's Bay Company would expand its holdings into the Pacific Northwest, especially with the loss of their colonies who would go on to form the United States of America. A race would ensue to be the first to the Pacific Northwest. Next time, we will establish our final player who attempted to lay claim to the Pacific Northwest. Russia would send explorers to North America via the Pacific and cause the Spanish to panic about its North American holdings. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.